Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Crystal River boat builders are reconstructing a mid-19th century sailing scow. You know, all the tools that we're using are hand tools, no electricity, no sandpaper. New York journalist Amos J. Cummings tried to depict Florida as it really was in the late 1800s. He wrote articles that reported on things that he thought would be of interest to his New York City readers. Memories of growing up with exotic Florida wildlife, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be. Silver on the shoreline, let us be talking about very free and easy. The Crystal River Boat Builders are dedicated to reconstructing historic wooden boats using traditional tools and educating the public about Florida's maritime heritage. The Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region, which is based in the Crystal River Preserve State Park, is teaming with the Crystal River Boat Builders to research and reconstruct a mid-19th century sailing scow. Bill Whalen is with the Crystal River Boat Builders and explains that a scow is basically a sailing barge. The scow was, of course, came from uh, Europe, although just about every culture in the world has got a scow. Um, but uh, the, the word is originally from the Dutch, and uh, it's basically a, a flat-bottom boat with a broad beam and a broad stern. Uh, it's not very narrow uh, in the front or the back is what I mean. And uh, it was used for uh, cargo. Uh, it held uh, a lot of cargo. Uh, because of its size, uh, it didn't draw much water. So <clears throat> it could be used in the canals and in the shallow uh, seas uh, surrounding, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the countries. And it was ideal for the coast of Florida because of the the uh, the rivers uh, were not too deep, and of course the coastline doesn't get very deep at all. Whalen says the scow the Crystal River boat builders are reconstructing is similar to many that would have been used to transport supplies in the decades leading up to and even after the Civil War. Anytime that you see a barge being towed by a uh, a tugboat or pushed up a river by a uh, riverboat, uh, you look at the hull and it's the, uh, it's the exact shape of. Uh, the scow. Uh, you could say that the scow was actually a sailing barge. Uh, when steam uh, and uh, diesel power uh, came into being, uh, steam in the late, in the middle 1800s and the diesel power in the early 1900s, uh, it became illogical to actually power the barges when you could actually, when you could uh, more efficiently tow them or push them around. Steve Kingery of the Crystal River Boat Builders compares the sailing scows with modern semi-trucks. 
He says that sailing scows were essential to Florida's participation in the Civil War. The uh, Union was running a blockade all the way around the Confederate states and here in Florida, too. They brought in special craft uh, here on the west coast of Florida because we have such shoal waters. They even used uh, converted New York ferries to uh, patrol offshore. But it is easy to close down Pensacola and Tampa because it was very focused, and the, so the big boats kind of got caught up, and the runners got ca- caught very uh, soon, early in the war. Uh, so all the sneaky stuff, uh, blockade running, kind of moved up to the uh, up to this area between Bayport and uh, Cedar Key and that kind of thing because it was a lot easier to uh, get past the the uh, big gunships. Florida was the third state to secede from the Union and was the primary supplier of beef to the Confederate Army. FPAN outreach coordinator Jason Mosier helped research the specific sailing scow being reconstructed, which was captured by Union forces. The scow was very commonly used around this uh, part of the coast, and we have some records that we've looked at for the uh, Union and Confederate navies, and we have found evidence that the Union Navy captured a scow under construction or just completed uh, in a river on one of their raids. I think it was the Wetapo uh, River. And after that, the Union Navy fitted it out by putting a howitzer on the uh, vessel, and they then utilized that vessel in a large number of raids that they uh, along St. Andrews Bay in later uh, expeditions. Now, the nice thing about that boat is because of its shallow depth and its large car- cargo capacity and the howitzer on board, it also made it a great amphibious warfare ship. So you, they did put troops on it, and they raided, made several raids on uh, salt works and things like that. While historical records about what happened to the sailing scow could be located, details about how the boat was built were harder to come by. Bill Whalen explains how the Crystal River boat builders approached the reconstruction of the scow with limited information about the boat's original construction. Now, we've done all of this with uh, the type of lumber that would have been available from a lumber mill back uh, in the 1860s. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pine lumber. Uh, of course, back then they would have used the old growth pines, which are all gone now, but we've had to resort to uh, the newer pines. Uh, and uh, we tied it all together. We nailed all the frames together and nailed all the planks onto the onto the frames and then uh, have to turn it over. Uh, of course all the boats, larger boats uh, were, if, if any larger than this it would have to be built right side up but we were uh, lucky enough to be able to build it upside down and then we turned it over and now uh, working on the uh, the deck, working on putting the, t- the mast up uh, the mast itself we got out of a swamp. It's a cedar tree, which was uh, almost 60 feet tall. Uh, had to drag it out of the swamp and drag it here to the site and uh, worked on that, got it all cleaned up nice and straight. Uh, it, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a task that takes a lot of uh, thinking, sitting around and scratching your head and wondering, uh, now just how do we think they might have done that back in those days? when they didn't have, you know, the power tool that we would expect to use today. Uh, how did they actually use those hand tools? Uh, how did they sharpen the hand tools? How did they cut that uh, little specific edge on that plank uh, before they could caulk it? 
what did they caulk it with? Uh, and uh, th there's a lot of questions uh, that we have to sit around and, and actually figure out. If you read stories about uh, the building boats in those days, uh, they'd say, oh, yeah, and then uh, we put the planks on, and then we put the deck on, and then, <laughs> and, you know, back then it was Uncle John and Grandpa and uh, somebody else from the neighborhood, and they all came over, and they had a lot of knowledge stored in their head, but, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of knowledge that didn't get passed down, uh, and that's, that's the kind of knowledge that we're trying to uh, resurrect right now. On the day we visited the Crystal River Preserve State Park, the Crystal River boat builders were working hard on the sailing scow in preparation for the fourth annual Crystal River Boat Bash scheduled for April 27th. The reconstructed scow would be the centerpiece of an event to feature dozens of historic boats, music, and historic reenactors. The Crystal River boat builders used traditional period tools on their reconstructions. While some other workers put nails into the trim on the scow, Nina Matei uses a hand drill on one of the beams of the boat. You know, all the tools that we're using are hand tools, no electricity, no sandpaper. And, you know, a lot of these tools we've inherited from fathers and grandfathers and uncles and so forth. So, you know, early um, 1900s models maybe, but they would have been used 1700s, 1800s. Yeah, for a long time the technology didn't change, it stayed the same because it worked really, really well. Jason Moser says that by helping with the sailing scow reconstruction and having the boat displayed at Crystal River State Park, the Florida Public Archaeology Network hopes to educate visitors about local maritime history. This park is mostly a preserve and there's a lot of boat tours and things like that for the natural visitors, visitors that are interested in the Nature Coast area. But this is uh, also an aspect that we hope has Enter, uh, entertains but also educates the visitor here who is interested in things uh, that are uh, cultural and we've got the archaeological park that's just a few miles away and a lot of people come to visit that but a lot of people are interested in life along the nature coast and how it's changed and the history of vernacular watercraft and old uh, ways of the sea and things like that there is a definite different culture that exists, I think, along seacoast towns that you do not find on some of these interior towns. It's just a different way of life, and it creates its own sort of insular culture, and it's just a, uh, we hope to help educate people about some of that, of course, and also uh, the technology and, and the different aspects of actually sailing on some of these inland waterways. Um, this was a major part of Florida's history. It was, uh, these boats were important for getting uh, commodities out of these small rivers and these small ports uh, that could get into deeper waters. They would go to places like Cedar Key or Bayport or Tampa or something like that and they would offload their cargo to warehouses until larger boats could come and steamboats and things like that. Then they would take the cargoes to major ports like New Orleans or Texas or uh, Cuba, someplace like that. So uh, these are an important but often overlooked aspect of uh, maritime 
craft along the coast. And so I, I, we think it's a very important part of what, what the uh, Crystal River boat builders are doing to educate the, uh, educate the school groups and things like that that come here occasionally, and uh, also to educate the general public about what was going on here in Crystal River, and also it's emblematic of what was going on along the entire Gulf Coast. The Crystal River Boat Builders and the Florida Public Archaeology Network Central Region are teaming up to reconstruct an historic mid-19th century sailing scow at Crystal River Preserve State Park. And it's a fair wind Blowing warm south on my shoulder I guess I'll set a course and go This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. To find out about all of our great projects, programs, and activities, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to follow our daily conversation about Florida history topics and much more. If you become a member of the Florida Historical Society, we'll send you our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. Just click on the Join Now button at myfloridahistory.org. In 2013, Florida commemorates its 500th anniversary, dating from the arrival of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon on our Atlantic coast. Now, a moment in history with Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture, Adam Putnam. In the early 1900s, Florida led the world in the production of naval stores, products derived from pine resin. These products were called naval stores because they had been used historically to preserve and waterproof wooden sailing ships. By the 20th century, however, they were used to manufacture everything from soap to paint. Florida's naval stores industry got its start under Spanish rule and developed slowly over the centuries. In the 1500s, when the Spanish explorers landed in Florida, they encountered vast old-growth forests. Nearly 80% of what is now Florida was covered in trees. Pedro Menendez de Aviles, who founded St. Augustine in 1565, described in his letters Florida's extensive pine woods. Access to these woods would be one of the advantages of colonizing Florida, he wrote, since they would provide Spain with great quantities of tar and pitch for shipbuilding. Yet the Spanish were slow to exploit Florida's natural resources. Their progress was impeded by conflicts with the Native Americans, French and British, outbreaks of disease, and the simple fact that with its sprawling empire, Spain was overstretched. For centuries, Florida's economy languished. Finally, in the 1730s, Florida began exporting tar, pitch, and mass to Cuba for shipbuilding. Exports increased in the 1750s when King Ferdinand VI began encouraging Florida's fledgling naval stores industry with tax breaks. Gradually, production and markets grew, and by the start of the 20th century, it was Florida's largest industry. This moment in history was produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I am down now, baby. Someday I will be free. 
I'm gonna treat everybody like they treat it for me. Retired St. Lucie County firefighter Jack Favorite shares memories with Janie Gould of growing up watching and eating exotic Florida animals. Before the St. Lucie County Administration Center was built on 25th Street in Fort Pierce, the area was mostly woods, and it was a place where some folks took their freshly captured sea turtles and manatees. Jack Favorite grew up a few blocks away in the 1950s. He remembers the woods as kind of an outdoor slaughtering center. I call it slaughtering house, but it was just frame set up to stretch out the turtles and the sea cows. Did you go there with your dad? Is that how you knew about it? No, I went over on my bicycle and rode around, and uh, you came upon these places everywhere in that area. It wasn't really a secret at all, was it? No, the game wardens kind of looked the other way because people were hungry back then, and it was a good supply of meat and protein. They would ride the beaches with their beach buggies and jeeps. When they got a turtle or two or they caught a manatee, they would bring them out there to dress them out and take the good meat home and leave the carcasses there. I guess the birds and other animals had a field day. Yeah, the buzzards and the uh, crows were in great number in the area all the time, and they were fat. I always ride my bike over there. My dog was in a wagon behind me. My pigeon flew overhead. This was just part of our adventure. Was that your pet pigeon? Yes, my brother was in the FFA. Future Farmers of America. Correct. And one of his projects was raising pigeons, and I picked one for my own, and everywhere as I went, she flew above me. How long did you have your pet pigeon? Basically until one of the kids in the neighborhood shot her with a shotgun. <laughs> oh, why'd they do that? Just being kids, being mean, I don't know. I used to ride my bike to high school. At that time, 25th in Virginia. Oh, Virginia wasn't there, but 25th was all dirt. All the roads to Dan McCarty were uh, dirt roads. When the state college area was a dump, I saw a mother black panther and two cubs. They had regular animal trails all through that area. I was following one trail and she was on a trail that crossed mine and heard them coming through the bushes. So I stopped because I thought it was my brother who I was chasing. She stuck her head into the intersection and I stuck my head in the intersection. When I saw her, I froze and she looked at me for about five minutes and then she decided I was safe. She went on her way and led two cubs right over crossed in front of me. You didn't get between the mama panther and the cubs, did you? Heavens no. <laughs> I'd have been mincemeat. You wouldn't be here to talk about it. That's correct. We had a dog named Molly. Over on the Little Jim Bridge, there was a uh, coon, and he stole everybody's fish. They had tried rifles. They had tried coon dogs. They had tried everything to get rid of this coon, and nobody could get him. So one night, Dad took my Molly over, and I cried the whole time because I knew she was going to be killed. She was a dog, but she was really my sister. I consider that. The first fish that got stole, my dad reached down, patted her on the head, and said, sick him. She went back into the swamp there at the end of Little Jim Bridge. It sounded like a war going on between the barking and the shrieking. After a while, it got quiet. The mangroves began to rattle, and uh, 
out came the dog. She walked right down the middle and over Little Jim Bridge, just as proud as she could be. Janie Gould prepared that report. Yes, I'm begging, I'm begging. We give a poor dog a bone. You told me that you love me. You told me a lie. The day you quit me, honey, that's the day you die. This is Florida Frontiers. In the late 1800s, many writers romanticized Florida into an Eden of sorts. As Bill Dudley reports, New York journalist Amos J. Cummings tried to depict the true Florida for his readers. He wrote articles that reported on things that he thought would be of interest to his New York City readers. Florida in 1873 was still a frontier. It was eight years after the Civil War. The frontier had reached down just below, say, Cape Canaveral area toward Jupiter, and that's where he went. Jerry Milanich is an archaeologist at Gainesville's Florida Museum of Natural History. He's best known for his books on the state's Paleo-Indians. But a few years ago, a colleague sent him a copy of an article from an 1873 New York newspaper, a compelling description of a Florida East Coast Indian mound. And the person that wrote this article wrote wonderful descriptions of the landscape, the natural history, bears frolicking on the beach, uh, wet vultures and trees. It was just marvelous. And so I said, I'm going to find out who wrote this. I was able, ultimately, to find out that the author of this article was a New York journalist called Amos J. Cummings. Mm -hmm. Cummings had been, as it turns out, a very well-known journalist in his day. And so over the next year or so, I really tracked him all over the United States and had, I think, one of the most fun research times I've ever had in my life. Milanich ended up in the New York Public Library, uncovering 15 dusty scrapbooks preserving the writings of Amos Cummings, a man of many careers. He began as an itinerant printer's helper, reported for Horace Greeley in New York, won the Congressional Medal of Honor for his exploits in the Civil War, and died in 1902 while serving as a member of the United States House of Representatives. He was very well known and at one time was actually being considered to run for vice president of the United States. Had no children and he just fell into obscurity. Had 
I seen this article in the 1880s or 90s, I would have known immediately who wrote it. Beginning in 1873, Cummings traveled along the Florida coast and into the interior on horseback, steamboat, and dugout canoe, marveling at the wildlife and the wilderness. He wrote about the people, settlers, frontier politicians, entrepreneurs, and colorful backwoods eccentrics. He made friends with a lot of the local people and wrote about things like the growing orange industry in the Indian River area. He wrote about the sea turtles, and one of my favorite parts is about a guy who his mules were hungry and he didn't have any corn, so he began feeding them sea turtle eggs. There were so many sea turtles. Uh, Extraordinary portraits of Florida, things that other people didn't write about simply because they didn't see it. The 19th century Florida frontier was about as far from the streets of New York City as anyone could imagine within the boundaries of the United States, and people were anxious to know more about the state. Cummings interviewed members of an expedition returning from Lake Okeechobee. They'd actually built a boat in Connecticut, had it shipped to Florida, hired some local guys to drag it by ox cart overland to the Kissimmee River, and they put it in there and then went down and sailed all around Lake Okeechobee, left a wonderful map, descriptions of places. But the journalist also wrote about what the explorers didn't find. A year or so before that expedition, the magazine that had become the National Geographic had published an article. Some guys had said they'd gone to Lake Okeechobee and found a lost civilization with islands and stone ruins and four-pound spiders, and people had believed it. And so Cummings, with some glee, I think, talked about how this was all total nonsense. Why were folks ready to believe any fanciful account of the Florida wilderness? Robert J. Malone, executive director of the History of Science Society in Gainesville, says it started a hundred years earlier with the factual writings of explorer William Bartram. Many fiction writers, such as Samuel Taylor Coleridge, use some of Bartram's descriptions in, in their fiction to describe things like paradise and fantastical elements that seem believable only in fiction and not in reality, though Bartram was describing realities. It's not too surprising that 100 years later, a lot of those fanciful things are still being described by visitors to the area. The credibility is still there because so few people had been to the interior. Cummings interviewed coastal wreckers, corrupt small-town officials, and members of the KKK. He wrote of murder and mayhem and miscarriage of justice, all first-hand accounts of life on the edge of civilization. Historians, I think, can plumb this for a lot of good information. Certainly, they would want to verify it with other sources, but they're mostly primary accounts. They can look and see, okay, this is how people were living in the Florida frontier back in the 19th century, and can use that to enrich their own histories. Cummings, in his time, was known as something of a blasphemous guy. He once said he was fired by the New York Tribune for using too many bad words. But he was also recognized as one of the first human interest reporters. His stories just didn't report the facts of murder trials or political corruption. But he wrote about people and things. His writings are filled with little anecdotes that let us see Florida in a a very different light. The book is Frolicking Bears, Wet Vultures, and Other Oddities, a New York City journalist in 19th century Florida, edited by Gerald Milanich and published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
please join us right here again next week. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.